God is a capitalist and he believes in selling stuff for money and actually for profit. And he says that right here. And he says, let's adjust the price to give a fair market price for what we're selling. And he actually tells them, you're not really selling the land, are you? You're actually selling a number of uh, years worth of crops. Very interesting. Hi, I'm Steve. For nearly 30 years, I've been a pastor and disciple maker, and what I really love doing is helping guys be better followers of Christ and better leaders at home. I'm Mark, a certified financial planner with an MBA and an Ivy League degree who wants to make sure you're making the smartest money decisions possible. And this is Abraham's Wallet. Join us weekly and create a culture in your family of multi-generational prosperity, spiritually, relationally, physically, intellectually, and financially. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. You know the Omnimax where you're oh, like yeah. surrounded by footage and it makes you it gives you disorienting sense of space yes we're going to uh see a movie that is out at the omni max right now called something about uh the rocky mountain railroad we thought being up in the rocky mountains felt kind of christmasy so we're gonna go hit that we're not gonna watch jane goodall and the gorillas we're gonna stick with the rocky mountain railroad so that well, sounds kind of fun and actually, this sounds crazy, but you know, this is crazy uh, grocery season time where you have to be very strategic about when you go to the grocery store. We're going to go tonight after after dinner as a family, and that's going to be like an outing where we, where we're all we're kind of looking forward to it. We never our schedules are such that we never get to do that together. I say get to, and uh, people go like, "What going to the grocery store?" But I think that'll actually be quite fun. And we'll be buying all of the stuff that we're going to make for our Christmas morning breakfast and all of the stuff. So that's that's what's in the immediate future for us. Well, well how about you guys? What has happened? What is happening? Um, well, I, I'm coming to you from the actual Rocky Mountains. Oh, um, okay, good. You can tell maybe. Maybe the listener can comprehend we can I sense that we can sense it in the room there's an I've electricity a little bit of a a cold so uh -huh. I'm, I'm a an octave or so deeper than normal um but i will tell you whatever they're going to show you on that imax right now is a lie because it is 52 and sunny outside it's not it's not christmasy oh could that change in the next few days i guess there were some pink clouds in the sky this morning so i told my kids Based on the rhymes I was taught as a tot, uh, that means it might snow soon, but who knows? I always thought that pink clowns, pink clouds meant that the cat in the hat had been to your house and he was trying to get the ring out of the tub and it shot it around the room and then eventually it shot up into the sky and made everything pink. Wasn't that, wasn't that part of the story? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. But All what right. I do know is that you have talked to me recently about a particular midrash that you attended. And I am excited to jump into it because there's some, there's some meat on the bones of this scripture from the freaking Levitical law. It's a fact. And contrary to what some might think, you and I think it actually applies to the dudes that are listening to this podcast. I think that this topic is apropos because we're kind of, we're, we're at the place, I hope, where people are making plans for next year. We're kind of praying prayers, uh, considering what the next year looks like. And I think there's some really helpful uh, boundary lines that the Lord draws in this passage. And yes, just to give the, uh, the credit where it is due, um, the things I'm going to be saying came out of a 90-minute conversation with about, I don't know, 25 guys. So I just want to say that not all of these uh, ideas are original to me. And uh, I don't know, I'll pay a licensing fee to whoever wants it for the ideas. Um, but yes, as you say, our group uh, went through Leviticus 25. And then as we have discussed in previous episodes, a midrash is a particular kind of Bible study that's a men-only conversation. And um, we just kind of discuss, sometimes combatively, 
what we think those uh, scriptures mean. And I just want to say to the listeners, in case this is strange to you, most, most of us, if you go to an evangelical church, you probably are in a place where they spend a lot of time in the New Testament. And the Old Testament is only a place to kind of give color to what you read in the New Testament. Um, I think that's a mistake. Uh, one of the reasons is because uh, what God did in the Old Testament was he, one, he allied himself to a family. And as that family grew and became a nation, God himself, then just consider this. I mean, act like you've never read a Bible before. Just consider the planet Earth and think, what if God himself in his righteousness and holiness said, I am, and you look at the, all the societal problems there are in different places, and God himself said, I am going to set up a society that will work the way that I want it to work. And I will make statutes and laws and, and even civic laws. Think of God setting up the speed limit and him going, this society will work the way that I want it to. Well, by definition, that would be the most righteous, whole society ever created because God himself invented it. It wasn't made by uh, those uh, founding fathers. God bless them. Um, it was made by God himself. So there's a lot of value in looking back and trying to understand why would God do this? What is he telling us about himself by the way that he sets things up? So that's the kind of uh, attitude that we have going into Leviticus 25. I'd like to just start by reading some excerpts of Leviticus 25 so that you get a flavor of what the what the juice is there, and then we'll talk about it. You know, a little uh, Bible reading music would be well served here. What, okay. What's the right tune for for Levitical law? Something something austere, something a little orchestral. I think would be. I don't want you know, sort of Middle Eastern tambour. I want I want something sedate. So we can okay. feel a little grown up here. Okay. That's better. Uh, here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, which I'm giving you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, you shall sow your field. And for six years, you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop as normal. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of rest for the Lord, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow seed in your field, nor prune your vineyard. Now that Sabbath for the land, that still happens today. And Israel has followed this statute, where in the seventh year, the land lies fallow. It goes on, I'm not going to read all of this uh, passage, but it says you can collect what the land naturally produces. You just can't prune it. And you can't sow. You just you, you just have to kind of deal with what it does naturally. Okay, I'm skipping down to verse eight, and it's now that we're going to talk about an, another year that's kind of unusual. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years. That is to say, forty-nine years. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim freedom for the slaves throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And a jubilee is a year of remission for you. And each of you shall return to his own ancestral property that was sold to another because of poverty. Now that's now just to sit with that for a second. So... What he's referring to here is that God assigned portions for all of the tribes to have specific parcels of land. This is going to be Asher's land. This is going to be Dan's land. And each tribe had a parcel, and then they would have separated that according to clan and according to family. All right, this is your family's ancestral land. And it got recorded somewhere in some temple somewhere. And then the, the idea is if a, if a family comes into dire straits and they go, we've got to sell our ancestral property for money because it's the, it's the best asset we've got. It's our, it's our number one uh, money producer. 
God's rule was you can you can sell that land, but you're really not selling the land. You're really selling a lease on that land that's going to end when we get to this 50th year. And these cycles of 50 years are going to keep happening over and over. And when we get to this 50 year, 50th year, everything reverts. It's all going to go back to the original families. If you were if you were a lease a leaser on that property, I don't care what you've built on it, it's not yours anymore. It's reverting back to the to the original family. So if you had if you had poverty in year 37, I'm afraid we have no other recourse. We're going to have to sell it for 13 years. Well, 13 years later, you're coming back there and we're starting over. So it's a very interesting idea. We'll talk about the implications in a moment. Now I'm going to skip down another few verses to verse 15. According to the number of years after the... And all I want, all I want to show you is how God is um, specific about how, how you will navigate this. What are the implications? Well, God's telling... I'll tell you some of the implications. According to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend... And he is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops, which may be harvested before you must restore the property to him. If the years until the next jubilee are many, you shall increase the price. But if the years remaining are few, you shall reduce the price, because it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God with profound reverence, for I am the Lord your God. He tells you some of the implications. I'm not going to spend any much time on this. I just want I just want to say to anybody who might have been led astray in the last few years, God is a capitalist. And he believes in selling stuff for money and actually for profit. And he says that right here. And he says, "Let's adjust the price to give a far a fair market price." For what we're selling. And he actually tells them, you're not really selling the land, are you? You're actually selling a number of uh, years worth of crops. Very interesting. Last section I'm going to read from Leviticus 25 is we're getting into the heart. And this, you know, our ears should perk up when God is revealing a little bit of his heart through these laws. The land shall not, this is verse 23, the land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine, says God. You, he's talking to Israelites here. He's talking to his special family. You are only foreigners and temporary residents with me. Wow. So in all the country that you possess, you are to provide for the redemption of the land in the year of Jubilee. He calls that the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor, he has to sell some of his property then his nearest relative is to come and buy back, redeem, what he, the relative has sold. Or in case a man has no relative to redeem his property, but he has become more prosperous and has enough to buy it back, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his ancestral property. But if he's unable to redeem it, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of the purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee, it will revert and he may return to his property. Okay, that's maybe I've read maybe half of Leviticus 25, but you get the flavor. The subject is the year of Jubilee and what it means to the land, what it means to landowners and uh, our, our particular interest is what does it mean to families and what does it mean to the culture of a nation? Now, I'm going to make five little, four little observations about what, what the implications of this are. Do you have anything to interject before I do that? I went through this passage after you were talking about it with yeah. me the other day with my family and their initial sort of blank stares were <laughs> probably what people are thinking right now which yeah. is like uh am i supposed to give back everything i buy after a set period of time right so if you're feeling that right now i would just say bear with us because um we're going to unpack some principles here that i think are relevant even in a world where we're allowed to buy things that we get to keep for 50 generations if the lord wills it so yeah that's all yeah, that's a that's a small little aside. 
is is that we I just would like for people to recognize that God thinks quite long term. He's thinking about generations upon generations upon generations. When he thinks of his land, which he 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 put the land of Israel aside and he said, I'm I'll take that land. Thank you very much. I'm going to take this for myself. One of the thoughts I had as I read this is most Americans really wouldn't care um, if these were the rules, unless they were in the like next 20 years where I'm going to have to give back what I buy. Great point. But most of us are in a culture where you just go, well, the purpose of the stuff I buy is for me to enjoy it. Yes. Not for me to think about the next three generations, much yes. less the next 10. So... I just would say let's let's care about 100 year and 200 year timelines. I know Steve you said something to me that I've always loved, which is if I could buy a 200 year bond that returned 20% per year, but I didn't get to take any of that money until the end, I'd buy it. Um yeah. that's so countercultural. Like yeah. nobody thinks that way. Yeah. Um so anyways, onward. Yes. It reminds me of our grandparenting 529, um, where you start saving money for your grandchildren when you're 20 years old or something that comes to mind. All right. Just a few observations about what I've read. So as we hashed it out in our conversation, we just were thinking, what are the implications uh, of this? Number one, wealth and when we talk about land for uh, an ancient Israeli, we're talking about wealth. They are synonymous with each other. Wealth doesn't end up in the hands of a few families in God's plan. Wealth stays distributed across the nation. So you could, in the short term, do dumb things with your money that put you uh, swimming upstream or your income becomes smaller and smaller, but there's going to be constant resets by God's hand so that somebody might be smart in 50 years and they've got a wing dinger of a business and they're buying uh, land two for one all, all over the place. And people are like, that sounds great. I, that Gee, wonderful. Well, that person's going to be growing in their assets, but it's going to pop back into where it's supposed to be uh, in 50 years. So that's an interesting thing to consider, that in the mind of God, when he was trying to plant, that, that's a verb that God uses over and over with regards to Israel, when he's trying to plant them in his land, he wants there to be many seedlings around, not one giant thing. He wants to be have many seedlings planted. He wants there to be a general level of wealth across many families. I would ask that of you or me or anybody in our community. What, are you rooting for there to be a general level of wealth and success across the families that you know? Or are you kind of like, oh, they're poor. Uh, I wish them luck. Or yeah, they're rich, whatever. Or do you think I want there to be among my people, let's just talk about the 25 guys I would have walked through this passage with. I look around the room and think, I want the, I want better for this guy. And for these young guys, I want them to I wanted them to increase in wealth. And for these older guys, I want them to be so wealthy that they have time to give back to younger guys, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what's your attitude? Is it competitive? It, it shouldn't be. Okay, that's just one. Second observation is that Jew, we, we, we read a verse that said, you'll sell to your friend. And the, the insinuation there, if you read the whole passage, is that we're talking about Israelis selling to other Israelis. So Jewish or Israeli families are preferred over foreigners or freedmen. That's a fact in this passage. It's not an opinion. Their best move, their best move, whether you're a freedman, everybody's going to be freed in the 50th year. You're a freedman or you're a foreigner. Your best move, let's just think about what happens in that 50th year. You get set free and you probably traded your time, your effort for a place to live and food, and maybe you've got a few hundred shekels left at the, at the end of that time. What are you going to do when things get reset? I'll answer the question for you. 
you're going to go find a, a, a good or better family to re-up with. You're going to go work for another family. You can't buy land. Land is not for sale to you. It belongs to all these families. You, unless, well, unless you've been incredibly fastidious, you don't even have the possibility of leasing from somebody. So your attitude will be, how, what, how do I feel about the family I was with? You, you'll have one of two opinions. Either they're great. I would like to re-up with them right now. They're, they're so generous. They receive us as family. We get to do Passovers with them. I've started worshiping their God. I've did, you know, I baptized my way into their faith because I know their God is the true God. Or, eh, I'm not crazy about this family. I'll go find another family and, and I'll, I'll uh, re-up with them. So, it's it's it is a not an American idea. It's a little bit offensive to us to think those people don't get a shot. God is preferring His people, His Israeli Jewish family, when it comes to land. And the best move for somebody who doesn't fit into that category is to ally themselves with a good Jewish family that's fair and generous. Okay, that's the second observation. Third observation. I think we're I think we're getting let me just repeat I think we're getting insights into God's heart here. I think well, like what are you trying to do here God? Well, it's very interesting what he's doing with the society. Number 3, it made sense to prefer dealing with other Israeli families and to benefit them because the relationships would be much much longer than just one deal or one harvest season or even one year. So when, when the sons, when you say, hey, if you'll send your sons over and we'll harvest on my property for three weeks, and then I'll send my sons over and we'll all harvest on your property for three weeks, you don't want to shortchange your neighbors and get a bad reputation with them. You know why? Because your relatives will always be near their relatives. Always. Forever. So the, the Hatfields and the McCoys uh, of, of the Ozarks, wherever that legend came from, of these two clans that are always fighting each other, that, that's, not, that's a bad scenario if you know that the land is always going to go back to these specific families and you know who your neighbors are and you know who your great-grandchildren's neighbors are going to be because this is our family's land. It was assigned to us. So there's something hear about like, I'm not going to screw over any of the families that I deal with because I'm not trying to just get a little bit of profit out of this one deal. That, that's not going to work. You've got to think long term. You've got to think of really business partnerships where everybody wins. That's got to be your attitude. And the last little observation is that this is just a knock on from the, from what I just said. Local communities were stable over generations since even renters would ev eventually time out and land would revert to originally deeded families. So as you were just saying, Mark, we have an American attitude, which is uproot. We uproot all the time. We'll uproot if there's a, if we get a house deal, that's more interesting three miles from where we are. And we realize all of my, peer group is going to change because I'm moving through miles. Ah, the kids will meet new kids at school. I will find another little church we can go to. It'll be fine. And we just uproot all the time. And in God's economy, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that way. I think there are long, long, long term relationships that even span multiple generations, something that we can't quite conceive to think, wait, my, my, best friends would be my father's best friend's kids. I mean, you know, like cousins is probably the closest thing that we have to even feeling this at all, which is, well, I was just around my cousins as a kid. I couldn't, I didn't choose them, but they're going to be my friends. Okay. Well, what if not only were your cousins around you, but the neighbors, your, your, your grandparents, neighbors, grandkids were your friends. That's who you were with. And you didn't get to choose these things. It would really shape the way that we handle relationships. We do so much picking and choosing. And um, 
we we let people go. Eh, that that guy sucks. I'm done with that guy. This guy's kind of shiny penny, kind of like him. He's interesting. Spend a few years around him. Yeah, he's a dud actually. He just presents good up front. I'm done with this guy. Who's the next guy? Like that just doesn't happen in God's society, if I may, if I may describe it that way. So these are all kind of chewy ideas. So I've got some applications that I have come up with or that we came up with as a group. Um, but those are my observations before I go into applications. Your thoughts out there in the Rocky Mountains? My thoughts from the from the Rocky Mountains, kind of what I said before. My first thought is, well, none of this exists anywhere in the world today. Yeah, There is no system of returning. I even have a gut reaction against what you said, that God wants wealth distributed because in my world, the people who want distribution of wealth are actually anti-capitalist. That's true. So that's, I just want to kind of leave that there. It feels to me on first blush, like, well, this doesn't apply to us anymore. And this law is gone. And it was there to protect um, a tribe of people that had a lot of neighbors that wanted to kill them so that they could kind of make it through a difficult era. That's what, that's what my now I will say, I I do know where you're going. And so I'm just giving you my first reaction when when I heard this for the first time. That's fine. This is kind of a a curiosity because it doesn't come into play anymore, but I will say that uh, God's intention would not be that any of this has ever gone away even in the year 2023. So what happened, if you know the story of Israel, is that they told God they wanted to be like the nations around them. We don't want your rule, God. We want a king like the other nations have a king. And God said, I'll give you a king. It's not going to go good if I do. And they're like, go ahead, give us the king. Okay, so be it. And they got Saul as their king and things started going downhill. Um. So all of the laws that God set up um, are still his heart, and they would still be in place in Israel right now. The funny thing is seeing which things have carried over into present-day Israeli society, such as the Sabbath year of, of harvesting has carried over. But as you say, we have no records that Israel ever followed this year of Jubilee, that it was ever followed. It's certainly not followed now. And there, um, there has been this huge dissolution of, um, of land, for instance. But uh, Jeremy Pryor made this point that God wanted uh, this, there to be this, this precious border around this piece of land that only my people can, can own so that foreigners and foreign interests couldn't come in, buy up the land and separate this culture up and start breaking them up and dissolving it. God's, God drew very hard lines around this land and said, this land will always only belong to my people. That was his intention. So anyhow, um, yeah, that is th- what you're saying is absolutely one of my reactions as well. Something in me goes, uh, now hold on a second. What we, we believe, you know, we, and I'm, and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, putting this on God. And I'm, and I'm, and I know that's a mistake. I mean it, I, this is a mistake that I do, but we go now me and God and all of us people, we're free market people. We just think you can go get them and however much to the winner goes the spoils. God's economy is yes, he does want wealth. We've written many times about the, the, the way that Abraham's wallet exists is that we do believe in, in prosperity. We believe in wealth building we think that's actually God's will is that a man knows how to do that, to build wealth and to manage it. Um, however, I feel a little restrained by the, the, by the concept in, in Leviticus 25 because it's not unlimited wealth building. God produces these, these barriers for you cannot build unlimited wealth. You'll never own all of the land of everybody around you. You'll never even own your tri- all of your tribe's land. You might be the richest family, but you the again, the number one way of building wealth, you'll you won't own all of that. That is going to be distributed permanently among families. Now, 
at the end of this 50 years, I mean, I'm sure there are people racing to re-sign lease contracts. Let, 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 let's keep it the way it is. This is good. This is good. And God is so interesting in the way that he thought through all this that later on in this passage, there's a different set of rules given if you live in a house that's inside a walled city. And he gives different rules that those don't, he doesn't consider that to be land the way that he considers this, this land, uh, the big uh, crop producing land. If you live in a, in a house in a walled city, well, that's, that's a different thing. You can keep, you can keep that and we can talk about that. But the way the land works is that it always, there's a limiter on how rich you can get. So one of my applications, my first application, all of this is that it seems that more than enough is too much. If I may say it that way, more than enough is too much. There, there is a limiter. Now we believe, we believe that wealth in as much as wealth is freedom of time, freedom of choices, um, we, uh, freedom to apply your time in such a way that you see that your family sees the benefits of that time. We think that that's desirable and we think that's of God. However, and I'm, and I'm, you're hearing my opinion about what this passage means, but wealth that creates separation, like elitism in a community, isolation from family and community, isolation from the poor is not good. So again, your family's going to revert back to a, an original shape. And there might be, we don't like the culture of that family. I don't know why they do the things that they do. This family has proven over the centuries that they're not good with money. I just wish my kids didn't mix with their kids. Not, you, can't, you can't do that stuff. You're, you're forced back into this community. And <clears throat> Mark, you and I have been talking recently about wealthy families that we've seen where their wealth produces isolation to the point that friendships are minimized, the ability to receive correction or instruction is minimized. It's not good for the soul, the, the kind of isolation that can come through egregious wealth, if I can use that word, not as if it's not, it's not like more wealth is sin, but the more wealth that you have, there is, there's a temptation to think of yourself differently, to separate and all of those things. So um, I'm just going to throw a couple of verses and let you respond. Thir Proverbs 38 comes into play at some point. And Proverbs 38 says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but simply provide me with the food that I need. Now, that's one person talking in Proverbs. It's not God's law set down for all people. You must never, uh, you must only have what you need to eat for today. I don't think we can support that idea uh, scripturally, but I do feel like there's boundary lines on there is a way to be so poor that it is sinful in God's eyes. I believe that there is sinful. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's a result of sin. I don't know where it came from. It might come from the person or come from external circumstances, but there is a point at which poverty is a result of sin. I believe you could be a billionaire and not be in sin but there is a way to be wealthy, as we have talked about many times here, which is absolutely sinful. And there's a way to be as a wealthy person that is isolating, that is destructive to your soul and to those around you. I think I could probably just leave it at that. Um, and I think that's represented in that Proverbs uh, 30 verse. So this is just something I was talking about with my uh, child today. When five capitals are threatened... That is, your morality is compromised. Your ethics become questionable. Your time with your family repeatedly and regularly suffers because you're pursuing money. Um, uh, you, you, have, you have the simple greed that tells you that more is always better, no matter what the cost is. There has to be a time when you say, for the sake of my soul, for the sake of my community around me, there's a, there must be a time when we say, you know what, I, I have to turn down that promotion. I, I'm not going to take the soul-crushing but oh-so-profitable project. I have to turn down the idea that 5% more would be nice, but I just can't be allied to these people. There have to be moments where you say getting more money isn't the end goal of life, and I have to choose other capitals uh, over them. So... 
one last verse. First Thessalonians 4.11 says, um, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands. Now, I think we can submit to that very verse and still be building multi-generational wealth. But in God's economy, again, we can think of like the story of Ruth and Boaz. The edges of the field are to remain unharvested. And what I mean when I say that is like the edges of your time, they're to be unharvested. You're supposed to have downtime with your kids to just be with them. You're supposed to have downtime with God to just be with him. If you're if you're spending time with God, are you checking your watch the whole time? Must make the most of every minute because every dollar every minute is a dollar. Is that what you're thinking? Because that's that's not healthy for you. So I think there's something in here about about saying Everybody just cool it when it comes to becoming the richest guy in the world. Again, we believe in wealth. I just think the Lord puts a boundary line on that. And then the year of uh, Jubilee, it's it's specifically, you just can't have all the land. Yeah, I, I'm going to disagree with what you said, but I agree with everything you described. So okay. one thing you said is you said, I think there's a upper limit to wealth beyond which it's impossible not to have sin. And I think practically that may actually be true, that there's never been a richest man in the world who didn't have some component of sinfulness associated with their wealth. But I don't think that's necessarily true. Right. I think that what you then started describing is the point, which is what is the result of your wealth? Um, and, I don't think that can even just be in you. You might be like, you know, I am just walking with Jesus. I am totally focused on him and I just keep getting more and more money. And he's blessed me with a business acumen that just makes that very easy for me, etc. And I would say, tell me about the other people that are connected to you. Um, how are they prospering? Because part of the reason you have wealth is not just to, like we say this all the time, it's not to bathe yourself in wealth. Um, it makes me think, and I'm not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not in the upper echelon of richest men in the world, but <clears throat> we started a business four and a half years ago, and I took a humongo pay cut when we started our business. And I think I paid myself like $15,000 the first year we were doing what we're doing now. And I always said, okay, there is a number and it's many, many multiples higher than what I make now that I would like to make in the long run. And I'm still working up towards that number. Um, and one thing that I have to ask myself every time I look at our bank account and our cash flow statement and think, okay, I can give myself a raise. I can pay myself more. We have employees. And I think, A, I'm not going to get myself to that, that goal amount by exploiting anybody. Um, meaning I need to think of them just as much. Like, Part right. of the reason that we have wealth and blessing is to bless other families. So right. That's the way the Lord works. He blesses other families through families. Um, Jeremy Pryor says it all the time that like you should only work for people who are kind of set as a father, setting you up to kind of grow and do your own thing. So like don't work for somebody whose intention for you is to be cheap long-term labor. Um, and so like, as I think about our employees, I think, well, I'd like to give myself like whatever the cash flow statement says I can give myself a 50% raise, but then I'm keeping somebody else that's made the same thing for the last three years. And we all know costs have gone up, et cetera. So that's not really fair. Um, it's not a good use of my wealth. It, it would be sin, I would say. Um, so for me, one of the best metrics um, of kind of how this is going is how are the people around you benefiting from your wealth? And if you're like, well, I have this great personal relationship with Jesus. I'm a good American Christian and I have my quiet time every day and it's wonderful. Um, but I don't, <clears throat> my employees would be just as well off if they were working for some secular butthead that didn't know the Lord. Then man, the Lord's putting wealth in, 
in a place that he probably isn't going to continue putting well for the long term because you're not very you're not proving very faithful. Mm. Yeah, well, I agree with your I, I agree with your challenge. I lose my I lose my head. What can I say? I was talking. Well, I think we agree. I think we agree on all of that stuff. It's just that one statement that like, could we imagine just like on the other side, poverty, I could imagine John the Baptist walking around with total net worth of zero total poverty. I hope I find a locust today. Yeah. Um, And that not being sin either. But we know that most of the time we see poverty, it's steeped in sin and generational sin and all that junk. So it's kind of an academic question, but I just wanted to, for the people out there who are like, well, I can think of an example. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We get it. Okay. Yeah. So you've set me up for my, my second observation or, or application is that one of the benefits of being a successful and wealthy family is supposed to be that you walk into eldership. So let's just imagine your, your family's great. Your grandfather was so faithful and your father was too. So the big um, estate was built on the family land, and you have figured out a way that you can lease out 90% of the family land, and you've still got a couple of acres to live on, all of the family tribe lives on, and uh, you're, you're basically passive income because you guys did it. Um, maybe you didn't do it personally, but your family did it, and you're the receiver. So there, there's supposed to be eldership present. That means the ability to mentor or sponsor young families who are struggling or haven't learned the important lessons of family building yet. Now, in the modern parlance, when we think of Paul, we call that discipleship. Um, but God's, God's intention is that there is eldership. That means that uh, you, you let's say you're from an, a family of Gentiles, me. Um, you you don't know God's ways. You come into this land, and uh, your 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 family is working for another family, and you want to find this gray beard that knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you want to spend as much time around this guy as possible because he has a successful family. You go like, well, how how do we do that? What what should we do? And he starts teaching you the Ten Commandments, and he starts telling you about honoring the Lord with a Sabbath. And you know, you you uh, Spaniards, you Manuel family out there, the Los Los Manuels, you guys have no morals. I see the way that you treat your kids, just smacking your kids around. You don't you don't train them in discipline. You just respond to them, blah blah blah. And the guy starts teaching me how to run a family. Guess what? That takes time. And if he had to spend all of his days out in the fields, he wouldn't have time for me to start training me in God's ways. So eldership is supposed to be one of the uh, benefits of success and wealth. And it takes time and it takes the the financial wherewithal of, of having passive income. And so this, the, and I also want to say about this sponsoring, mentoring, discipleship kind of relationship is supposed to be, first of all, again, thinking about the way God set things up, it's supposed to be, first of all, with our own. So the first people on planet Earth you should be interested in discipling would be your own children. That's the first most important people you could possibly disciple on planet Earth. The next people after that would be... Just until they turn 18, right? And then maybe you give them some college money. No. Great question. I was was with a dude this morning and he was expressing the pain of feeling that, you know, after 16, I don't, I don't know the full story, but after 16, what happened to all the kids? They, they went nutso. And it's a story that's been repeated over and over and over. I was reading a study this morning that was reminding me of the sad news that over 80% of evangelical children will walk away from the faith that are around evangelical circles. We're, there's something we're not doing well. Um, I suggest it's fathering at the base of it. But um, 
after we disciple our own children, the next people we should be interested in discipling are those who are right around us. You know, look in your look in your networks. Look at the kids in the Bible study that you're a part of. You know, I have a, a dear neighbor. He loves the Lord, but he's the first in his entire generations to want to follow God. Does he have a model for what it means to be a father or even a husband? A godly model? I'll answer that for you. No, he does not. He's never seen it before. He needs discipling. And I might think to myself, well, he's a buddy of mine. I mean, let him figure that out for himself. I'll go find some guy I don't know, and maybe I'll start building into him. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you keep, if you have something that God's done in you and you can share it, why wouldn't you keep those things near you? We always want the the women who are closest to our family. That's who we want spending time as a, as a, a cross-pollinator with our children. We want them uh, spending time and demonstrating uh, what being a woman of God is. You know, my point is just we should we should be more willing to keep things at home, to keep our gifts, our callings, our discipleship, keep those things near us. That was clearly God's plan with the way that he set up Israel. Okay, I can make a knock on to that unless you want to interject there. No. Okay, I'm going to read from... I'm going to read from Galatians 6. It says, Let us not grow weary or become discouraged in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap if we do not give in. Again, think of many, many, many generations that God's interested in. We will reap if we do not give in. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people. And doing that which promotes the spiritual well-being of all people and, this is Galatians 6.10, especially to those of the household of faith. Do good for all people, but especially, underline it, bold it in your mind, especially to those of the household of faith. My observation is that the modern Christian has a funny way of overlooking those nearest to us and shipping our charity overseas, where it does all sorts of mayhem. And this was a major talking point in our little Midrash group. Um, we, we know stories of, here's a, here's a crazy little story. Um, a friend went to visit his Compassion International child that he'd been sponsoring. And this was the day when this tour group that he was a part of, of all of the foreign sponsors were going to come meet their kids. And what he saw as he was pulling up was that there are many two-parent families that were kind of gussying up their kids, dressing them up, and then they'd push them away to the little orphanage slash school, and then they would hightail it out of there. Why? Because the more that their children looked as if they were not from two-parent homes, the more likely they were to receive the foreign aid that was coming through Compassion International. So, so I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Compassion International. In this one, um, in this one circumstance, it was this foreign aid where a family is not known. Where our foreign aid money is actually um, hurting these families. They're, they're, we're removing the authority of the father in the home. He's not the spiritual leader. He's not the provider. We send the kid, you know, to away from the family to get those things. That's a bad move. We don't like that. I've heard stories of um, maybe you've heard this where Tom's shoes was their their big deal was we're going to give away shoes to third world kids. If you buy a shoe in America, we'll give away a pair of shoes. What they what they did, <laughs> what Tom's did was put local shoemakers out of business because if you're a, if you're an indigenous shoemaker. You can't compete with this free stuff that's coming in from the USA. Nobody buys your stuff. Well, I guess, I guess we're out of business. And so there's like this, these weird disruptions that happen when we send all of our charity far away from us. And what about the people who are in your small group or in your church? They have needs. There's, there are single mothers in your church 
For sure there are. And they struggle. And have you ever thought about cutting them a check for 5,000 bucks and just going, I just know that my charity giving is supposed to bless those around me. And I know you guys, and they might say, we're, we're, we're doing okay. We're making it. Yeah, but you could always use help. I'm, you know, just that kind of thing is very challenging to me um, that we, we should be sponsoring or subsidizing or investing in local like-hearted families who are starting biblical family legacies. At least those should be our first channels of charity. Not that you should never send to a storm victim in Haiti, but it's, it's insane that believing families nearby you would be struggling and you, are, you, you turn a blind eye toward them and send your money far away. It's also just so much more fun. Like you and I were talking about giving in places where you can see and interact with the impact of your giving. When we were talking about your little basketball program that you got to witness um, where somebody had set up a a scholarship and it was only a thousand bucks a year, which when you told me this story about kind of they they get to give a thousand bucks a year to one of the managers on a university basketball team and it, it needs to go to somebody who really needs it and i thought you know the 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 giving of foundation type gifts where like oh there's a mark parrot scholarship right that sounds like it's the domain of the hyper wealthy yes it does but it when i heard your story i was like well i could set up a a scholarship at my local Christian school and make that available. Or like, it doesn't have to be, you you might be listening to this and go, well, a thousand dollars would be like way more than I could ever imagine. But there, I guarantee you at whatever level, whether you're thinking, well, $10,000 would be nothing for me. Or you think, I think I could stretch and do a hundred dollars. Like there's ways to give directly to people in your community that need that would just take your wealth at whatever level it is yeah and i you can come up with a hundred bucks if you're working for 15 bucks an hour yes once a year you can come up with a hundred bucks yes and um i always just encourage people to like try it and feel it so like if i'm working with a family from financial planning maybe they aren't even christ followers but i believe there's actually something that's life-giving about generosity it expresses the father's heart he made us so we actually enjoy it and i'm like just can you just take twenty dollars take a twenty dollar bill and find a way to give it away this week and people always come back and go that was actually (laughs) miraculous they're always amazed at what god does with a tiny little amount yeah it was way more fun than we thought yeah maybe we'll try a hundred dollars next and maybe we'll so that's my encouragement that's great well, my last, uh, my last uh, application is, uh, I hope, obvious, and it's that relation, I hope it's already crossed your mind, but relationships and reputation within the family of faith is of great value. So not only is there spiritual wisdom and character building in that, quality of family and friend relationships, quality of your business relationships not only should you never, ever shortchange a brother in business or in honesty or truth, brother should go out of your way to maintain a good standing with every brother, with every family, particularly those with whom you deal regularly. Mistreating a brother and then relying on his grace or charity to overlook your misdeeds isn't just bad form. It it is dishonorable and damaging to you and to your family's name and to your the way that you relate with the entire family of faith. Now, I hope that people are shrugging their shoulders, going like, Yeah, of course. Why why would you ever? I'm just telling you, I've been I've been talking with uh, friends yea verily this week about about betrayal. I've seen it happen over and over in my business, my personal business life with other professing believers. Matter of fact, I can say that all of the betrayal that I have experienced in my life has come at the hands of professing believers, Um, including that old man we talk about sometimes 
who bilked us out of 80 grand in the oil business that we invested in that went belly up. That guy, that guy, oh, he's a good old Christian grandpa. Um, he wasn't a good old Christian grandpa. And um, the, the idea of betraying another brother is so odious. It would be so unthinkable. And as I said, in the situation where, look, we're going to be tied to these people. They're around us forever. We couldn't, we wouldn't possibly, you know, mess our own beds. And that's exactly what, that's exactly what you do when you try to screw somebody over. Um, I, I, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to walk through repeatedly. I got to do this over and over to walk through forgiveness in my mind to people who've done this because I can't conceive of doing this. I, I, I always think of Abraham and Lot and him saying, I would rather be wrong and I would rather be on the losing side than to do wrong by you. I, I'm going to prefer you. I want to give you the good piece of land because I know that I'm dealing with my father's family and he watches it very closely. Um, one great story on this was we knew friends uh, live far away from us and they had had a bad business dealing with a professed believer to the tune of about $20,000. And the guy had screwed them out of money and he kind of confessed it and then was kind of like, I, you know, I hope you guys can find it in your heart to forgive me. And that's where things sat for a while. And then, and then there was, there was a righteous uh, testimony that came up in this community and the men around this whole story came and turned the screws on this guy and said, you must give restitution financially for what you have done. And, and to this guy's uh, credit, he humbled himself. He found a way to pay back everything that he had stolen. And he restored his good name in that community. And now he is, uh, he might not be fully trusted, but he is an increasingly trusted member of that community. It's a wonderful story. And I think it's the way that we should be with each other, which is I wouldn't dare shortchange another believer because we're tied together forever. These are my brothers. I don't care whether he's a squirrel or whether he's immature or what. I'm not going to be the kind of guy that would shortchange anybody else because yeah. I understand the way God sees these relationships as being very, very long-term. And I want to just fill in some color around what does it look like practically, because you're, you're kind of describing what I would say is one end of the, how do you maintain honest, straightforward, positive business dealings? And that's don't actively steal from your friends, <laughs> right? Don't do that. And certainly that's true. Um, you and I have seen that happen before to people who are close to us, etc. I'd yeah. say there's a there's a continuum though, and I want to just highlight some stops that I would say don't do this either. Good. One of those would be maybe you didn't actively steal, but you held yourself out as a trusted person. I'm excellent at building, and I will build you a shed. Mm. And you built a shed, and it fell down, and you went. Well, sometimes that happens. And then you move on and you, you yes. continue holding yourself out as a good shed builder. Yes. I've seen that happen. You and I have both seen that happen, yes. Steve, in places where we invested in somebody else's business. We did so knowing that there's risk here. There was no no illusion that we had. The risk was uh, zero. Of we, course. We said, maybe we'll lose all our money. The place where I think this principle got violated was um, I as founder am going to try to wiggle myself out of any responsibility yep. and make sure I come out looking like a shiny penny. Yep. Um, don't do that. So there's another stop there where nobody stole anything. Um, the money was gone. So fine. But there was some lack of honor Yes. and sort of I want my name to to carry weight that, that could have been done differently. Absolutely. And right. then I would say there's also a place here, which you might not have ever thought about, but we, you, you talked a little bit about preferring to do business with the people in your community. Yeah. That's a great tip. And I'm just going to add on, uh, don't ask for a discount. Um, <clears throat> so agreed. 
there's there's two sides to that coin. One, be be fair in your pricing. Um, that's something that I'm very convicted about is that I think, especially as a financial planner, a lot of people don't know what they pay their financial planner. So I'm very big on this is exactly what you pay. Do you feel like you're getting this much value? I don't care if you're talking to somebody who's doing a construction project for you or a service like ours or whatever, um, selling you a car. I think they should be able to look you in the eye and say, this is the price. Did you get value? And seek to do business in a way that people on the other side of that say yes. And if you're dealing with somebody that operates that way, then you shouldn't say, well, I'm your friend. So can I get this at cost? And it's like, well, then I have to say no to other people who I could make money off of. This is my business. Um, I'm not saying that it's wrong to give your friends discounts. If you're in business, that's fine. Um, I've been super blessed by people who have given me discounts on stuff they made or whatever. But I don't think we should be saying, well, I'm going to prefer to do business with my community because they're going to give me a discount. And if they don't, then you know, I'll go elsewhere. I just, we've talked a lot about my little laundry room project. Yeah, The guys who are doing it were not the cheapest option, but they were guys that are in my community of faith. Um, and I love them. And I said, guys, I'm hiring you to do this because I know you're good at your job and you're honest and I want your family to do well. So I'm not going to bid this out to five different contractors and come back to you and go, well, you need to beat the lowest price. That's not how we're going to do this. Um, so just a thought. Don't uh, don't nickel and dime your buddies either. That's part of That's great. kind of maintaining good dealings inside your community. Is um, <laughs> I almost think of it like leaving leaving the edges of the field unharvested. Don't don't squeeze every dollar you can you're right. out of deals with your buddies. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, as you can see, uh, walking through Leviticus 25, just this one little concept has had tentacles into all sorts of subjects. And uh, you get 20 guys together in a room who could talk about any of these details because everybody's got a story and everybody's got thoughts. And um, I know that might it might be seem uh, far ranging uh, today's episode and you kind of go, <laughs> what's the theme here? The theme is that we want to handle money according to the culture of the kingdom of God. That's it. So I, I hope you've been willing to uh, go with us on a little bit of a, a walkabout today and talking about these implications of Leviticus 25. I thought as a wrap up, I thought about originally giving, giving you all, here's a couple of prayer points as you look into the year to come based on Leviticus 25, but I'm thinking, why don't I just go the other step of the way? And if you're willing to do it with me, why don't we, I'll just pray with you right now. And if you agree with me, that'd be great. So this is what I always tend to do with, with Bible passages is I want to agree with God's heart. That's it. It doesn't even matter if I understand it. It doesn't matter if I like it. I just want to agree with what God says. So I'm, I just have little three little prayer points that I'm just going to pray with you right now. So let's do it. Ready? God, as we're making plans and we're praying for our next year, I'm asking that you keep in mind for us these principles, these eternal principles that you have laid out that are described in Leviticus 25. So I'm asking God that you would make every one of our families successful in the coming year, that you'd make us wise, that you'd make us even shrewd, um, not to take advantage of people, but just to be wise. Um, we ask that you would make us people of peace, that we would, uh, everywhere our feet go, the kingdom would go. Um, but Lord, we ask that you wouldn't give us as much success as we sometimes desire because our character can't always handle it. So we would say to you, Lord, we trust you to give us success. I'm thinking of that Proverbs 30 verse. Give us success, Lord, but not so much in the coming year that it would ruin us or it would hurt our relationships or it would hurt our ability to be charitable or it would hurt our dependence on you. We do ask for success, Lord, but we, we trust you with knowing what we can handle. And we ask that you would grow our character to the point where Paul says, I, I know how to be satisfied with little. I also know how to be satisfied and content with much. 
So I do ask God that you'd make us more capable of handling more, more uh, great relationships, more of your wisdom and revelation, and yes, more money, because it's one of the teaching things that you love. Secondly, I ask God that you would keep our hearts at home first in this coming year, that our concern would start with ourselves. God, deal with me, deal with my sin, deal with my bad thinking, then my family. God, make me wise with my wife. Let me be a good leader for her. Let me produce a home where she can blossom. Then for my children, God, would you, would you tell me would you make lights come on on the dashboard of my life that I can train them up in wisdom? In, in five capitals, I want them to be wise with money. Like, can I give a plug in, in the middle of a prayer for the episode that you just did with Kyla? The, you know, describe, um, training our kids with finances, but God also training them in your word, training them in their relationships, training them to be good at school. God help us with our homes. And then those homes which are most closely connected to our own. May, may we just have our hearts at home first. And thirdly, Lord, may we be faithful and trustworthy to your family. May, may you develop in us the character of, of elders. You say in your word all the time, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Not just to be loving in a flash, compassionate in a sweet moment, but over the long haul, love and faithfulness that we would be trusted. People go, I know I could go to Bob, uh, even with a business opportunity for him, because he's going to serve me in it. He's going to consider my interests. He's going to be somebody who is looking at the big picture of the kingdom of God. I ask that for every, uh, every listener of this episode that you, you you develop in us faithfulness because you see what happens in behind closed doors you see even the thoughts and intentions of our heart lord and we ask over the coming year that you'd make us uh, better uh, stewards of your land and your people and your word and your money and your kingdom we pray it in the name of jesus amen bless you guys Hey, if you liked this content, be sure to like it and subscribe and share it with somebody. And remember, no matter how you're doing and leading your family, God's love for you is huge and His grace is planted.